Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Thought for the day, it's the one without the God requirement. None of our thinkers here is in full-time religious employment, I think it's fair to say. Um, did you know that little Philip Blonde, who is in part responsible um, for the big society, was a theology lecturer in Cumbria? It, hold that in your head. Um, now, instead, these three do dynamic service in media and politics. And it's just as well, because today's thoughts are going to be sort of about media, but not about Twitter. Um, uh, Media values was the theme of um, our talk at, at Port Marion, our debate. Um, we're going to be talking about values today, um, but not, I hope, about community, which was the other thing we talked about. Now, um, they're going to go in the following order. Catherine, Dan, Mr. Whittingdale. I'm saying that because he's so important in the great scheme of things. Um, first, I, I'm, I'm going to introduce them. They're going to rabbit on for about five minutes about what's on their minds, and it'll be media-related, but not entirely. And then I'll ask them some very penetrating questions for about another two minutes or so, and then it's your turn, and then we wash up at 9.30. Does that sound fair? There we are. Now. Catherine Mayer here is London Bureau Chief for Time. She's in charge, in a sense, of the Do They Mean Us stories. Derek Jameson had a program on the telly called Do They Mean Us, and he showed all the things that foreign correspondents said about us. Oh, God, it was wonderful. Um, and Time magazine, for decades, has told thoughtful, middle-class, responsible Americans what to worry about, along with Newsweek, and Walter Cronkite, the Walter Cronkite generation of TV journalism, it set the agenda. And now the whole thing is much, much more challenged financially, ideologically. Where do you go with Sarah Palin and Fox News? And Catherine's worked all over the world, particularly in Europe, for Time and other sort of international news magazines. She started on The Economist. There's a plot line there. She is a registered American. But in a million subtle little ways, she knows about us because she's been here for 20 years plus. Isn't that amazing? And she's going to talk about a current obsession of hers which happens to be enshrined in a new book coming out any minute. Catherine. <laughs> yes, well, plugs are very important. Uh, I don't get out of bed in the morning these days unless I get a plug. Um, no, I did, I did actually come to talk not just about media, but about age, and I thought I'd start with some um, deeply personal questions, make this a bit interactive, unlike thought for the day. So um, let me just ask somebody in the audience, how, how old are you? Uh, yeah, okay, you, how old are you? I was pointing to the woman next to you, but I'm very happy to hear how old you are. And how old do you feel? Um, no, well, that, that gap between the age that you are and the age that you feel uh, turns out to be very typical. Um, 
how do you think you compare to how your parents would have been at your age? Well, well I, in some ways, I made a mistake by picking somebody as young as you, because if you ask somebody who is 40, um, they may not know the answer to that. If you ask somebody who's 50 or 60, they'll say, there is a world of difference between the way I am now and the way my parents would have been. Unless, of course, they're me, because my parents helped inspire my book. Um, because uh, my father, in his 80s, is still scuba diving. In fact, he learned to dive at, when he turned 70, uh, just in order to celebrate his birthday. Um, uh, some wider questions. Um, who here has an iPod? An iPad? <laughs> of course, yeah, I knew Julia did. <laughs> um, I don't want to use the T word, but users of social media. Um, different question, seems unrelated. What's the best age to have children? <laughs> the perfect answer. As I suspected, we have a room full of um, what I call amortals. My, my book, just to give it the full plug, is called Amortality, the, the Pleasures and Perils of Living Agelessly, available at all good bookstores from May and on pre-sale uh, on Amazon at the moment. And what it talks about is how our ideas of age and our, our expectations of age have come adrift and why this is. And why this is actually relates back to the broader subject of media. And indeed, the T word could feature there, but I'll try not to use it. Um, I'm interested on, about age, both on, the changes in age, both what this means on a personal level and also a policy level. Amortality is a word I coined in 2009 in a Time magazine article. Uh, we have an annual cover feature. Um, by the way, I would take issue with uh, Peter's description of time slightly in the sense that we're much more international, I think, than, than we were in the days when we set the agenda in the US. We're very aware, we're the largest news magazine in the world and we're very aware of having a, a readership across the world. So we're always trying to trend spot and we have this annual 10 ideas changing the world right now. And I coined the word amortality to describe the trend that I had noticed, which was that although we're living 30 years longer now than we did at the beginning of the 20th century, instead of fitting in more ages and stages of life, to me the ages of man appeared to be eliding. That <clears throat> you, you look around and you see people doing basically the same things, dressing the same way, whatever age they are, very often in denial about later life issues about death itself, just going on doing the same things from their youth right up into old age. And I started to wonder, I wrote a short article about that, but then I started to wonder really what the much more profound implications were. And <clears throat> it's not, let me make clear, it's not just that we don't grow old as we used to. The changes affect the beginning of life too. Think about all of our concerns about hypersexualized children and about the way children dress and indulge in, in adult, what we call adult behaviors. These elisions are, are happening throughout. Um, 
In this slot today, and, and also with Lord Hutton's report in pension reform coming out this week, um, I thought I'd um, look a little bit at how our amortal instincts to deny age can actually be a force for good. Because one of the other things is that people tend to think that amortality represents a dumbing down of society. You know, this, we have great prejudices against the idea of people clinging to youth. Um, and for my research, I mean, I did go to some of the wilder shores of, of age management. I went to a clinic in Las Vegas uh, where they use hormones and other treatments in order to manage your age. I, I stood in swaying a little bit as uh, cosmetic surgeries were performed in front of me in Park Avenue. Um, so, you know, I have, I have looked at the ways in which people do this. Um, one of the other points, again, to relate this to, to our media theme for the, the day, is the way in which the internet has both contributed, or the digital world, if you like, has both contributed to the breakdown in our firm ideas about age and ageing, and also how it's changing our ability to present ourselves. One of the reasons our ideas of age have come so unhinged is not only that we're living longer, but that we have lost faith in many of the institutions that used to tell us how to behave at different stages of life. Um, the church community, for example, used to be very prescriptive about what you did at certain stages. Uh, we used to have politicians who we trusted and who would, uh, could be um, relied on to, to give us direction. Nowadays, who do we believe? Well, we believe celebrities we take a lot of cues from celebrities and we take a lot of cues from, science, from scientists. We have um, a faith in science that has remained pretty much unshaken. Uh, I mean, yes, of course, you can, you can come up with examples where science has failed, but our lives are absolutely infused with these ideas about science and uh, the possibilities of radical life extension, the possibilities of medical science to intervene and cure things. Um, now, the internet has been a vehicle for the incredibly fast spread of a lot of these sort of tropes and memes, if you like, but it also permits people to present themselves the way they would like to present themselves. So William Gibson, the science fiction writer who coined the term cyberspace, um, described himself to me as a massively unaugmented old guy, except that he has a huge prosthetic brain that he uses in order to research his novels. Um, there are no journalists, I think, who would not see the internet as the starting point for any research. But it, as I say, it also, it also leads us open to this incredibly fast spread of ideas. Now, I said immortality can be a force for good. Um, one of the things about the research into age and aging is that the th one, what is bad for us is to rust, to vegetate, to do nothing. Um, if you look at the f speed with which the wor world's population is aging, and it is incredibly fast. I mean, I don't know how many of you know, but the fastest growing segment of the world population are centenarians. Um, and by 2050, 
over a fifth of the world will be over 60, and in some areas, two-fifths of the world will be over 60. One of those areas where it's going to be more than two-fifths is Greece. Now, Greece, in its financial crisis last year, people went out onto the streets outraged when they tried to raise the pension age. What were they trying to raise it from? 53. Um, the average Greek life expectancy is in the 80s, in, in spite of the fact that they're the heaviest smokers in Europe. Um, they wanted to be paid an average, to do nothing for an average of 27 years. Now, I know for a lot of people that's a very attractive idea, but research suggests that's also quite a dangerous idea. To, to my mind, it is a social service that we resist age in the sense that we use our energies to stay engaged, to age healthily. I suspect I'm running out of time, so I can't get into the... I'm getting meaningful looks from over here. And, of course, one of the things about amortality is we don't notice the passage of time. I could go on for absolutely ever. Um, you know, I turned 50 in January, and I'm going, what? How did that happen? Um, how long do I have? One second more. One second more. Okay. Um, all I will say is that there are a whole range of reasons why we are not aging as healthily as we might do. Amortality can help us. There are all sorts of areas of government policy, um, things that we can do for ourselves uh, that can improve this. Thank you. Now, one of the things I wondered as you were talking was whether there was a counter-trend, whether there was a group of people rather like, for instance, in sartorial areas, there's a funny little magazine called The Chap, which is very keen on men wearing three-piece suits and ties at all times of day or night. It's sweet. Now, Islamofascism would be quite a good counter-trend to amortality because they believe in being dead and being locked up, if you're a woman, as far as possible until you are dead, isn't it? The enveloping prescriptive... <laughs> the enveloping and prescriptive religions, whether Islam, Christianity, Judaism, but to a lesser extent that I explain in my book, because Judaism doesn't really have much of a concept of the afterlife, quite apart from anything else. Um, the, but the, the prescriptive religions inoculate people against amortality. Christianity, however, and a lot of, a lot of people have, take it, have, have pick and choose, pick and mix religions nowadays. They believe in astrology as well as a, a Christian theology. They will tell you that they also quite like bits of Hinduism and you know, they also would quite like to believe in reincarnation. Those, that sort of religion, it may give people um, a narrative in order to deal with the idea of the end of life, but that assurance tends to wear out when they approach the end of life. And it's only, I mean, I think Islam is probably the most perfect inoculation against immortality there is. There you see, that's the clash of civilizations. People who want to live forever and people who want to be dead as soon as possible. Um, it's really exciting when you think about it, isn't it? Well, what a wonderful book. I want it this minute. Um, now, our next speaker today is Dan Saba. Am I saying it right? You are, yeah. Good. Um, Dan Saba is the Guardian's registered modern world person. 
um, meaning he's head of, do you want to, there's a various strands and tribes within the Guardian, some of them made up of um, um, charming women of, of high degree uh, and, and, and um, some of them made up of modern world people. I'll say no more. Um, and he's head of me media and technology. He founded a media news site called Beehive. He's a former Times man, a Telegraph City reporter, a former London lab Labour councillor, media advisor to Una King in her mayoral bid. So I was going to say, is it Crouch End for you, Dan, or where? We were talking about a, a postcode. I live, in, I, I live in Clapham on the Clapham. End, on the end of the omnibus route. There you see, it's it's lovely, Dan. Um, well, thanks for that introduction. Um, I've never been introduced like that before. Uh, I've got a few sort of uh, disconnected thoughts about where I think the sort of media industry and business and politics and life are going at the moment, and I just offer three things up for you that are on my on, on my mind. Um, I have some thoughts about the balance of power. Um, some thoughts about life after pessimism and some thoughts about the vision thing. Um, just firstly on balance of power, which is sort of my way of talking about Rupert Murdoch and what's happened in the last few days and where we're sort of going over the next decade. Uh, I think it's quite interesting to try and take a long view of, or a sort of medium-term view, sort of 10 years, it feels like a long view to me, but anyway, a medium-term view of, kind of, of where we might be going. And I think what we've seen in the sort of set of decisions taken over the last few months, which some would say welcome, some would say otherwise, uh, about the BBC licence fee and its level of funding and the decision to allow this Rupert Murdoch merger to go through, I think is part of a a broader continuum really in which we're sort of gradually moving from a kind of Arsenal model to a Chelsea model or from a British model to a French model by which I mean that we are moving to a sort of world I think in media in which the balance of power is shifting away from public organisations uh, indeed publicly listed publicly listed companies and the public broadcast from the BBC towards uh, media organisations controlled uh, in con growing conglomerations by uh, private individuals and, and I think what, what happened was, sort of, if you like, the traditional model of media that kind of broke, began to break down, I think, in the sort of 80s and 90s, was there were a whole number of sort of smallish family-controlled businesses, many of which went on to the, came quoted on the public markets as, as, as public money chased all kinds of media stocks fairly reasonably enthusiastically in the 90s and into the first part of this decade. Uh, but what you've gradually seen is, as valuations have deteriorated, as pessimism has sunk in about the future of... Uh, the media, particularly consumer media, you, 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 you've seen valuations collapse, you've seen the rise of the leverage buyout, and you've seen gradual concentration. Uh, indeed, a kind of consensus view has emerged that the best thing, for, particularly again for consumer media businesses, the best thing is sort of long-term stable private ownership, typically with some kind of proprietor behind them. And so you've seen, and, and this is sort of, if you like, played into the hands or has been exploited by, not just by people like Murdoch, but I don't know, players like Richard Desmond who gradually built up a, a, a sort of a private you know, multimedia empire of which we seem you know, pretty cheerfully and relaxed and tolerant about and maybe we should be by the way but let's not delude ourselves and think of Richard Desmond as a, anything less than a controversial figure. And that's the kind of move, I think, offered from the Arsenal model to the Chelsea model, if you like. Arsenal's sort of been run as a public company in its own kind of way, with no dominant shareholder since time immemorial, and did all right, and has done pretty well, because it's been pretty well run. You know, and Chelsea's owned by a Russian plutocrat who sort of helps pick the team and do the signings and so forth, and, and inject vast amounts of capital into it, and it's kind of worked okay for Chelsea too, but it's a different kind of model. And I think where, 
you know, what, what will happen, I think, gradually is that that trend, I think, continues over the next eight to ten years because, frankly, the, the, the stronger players in media tend to be, seem to be the, the privately owned ones or at least the most stable. You know, you contrast that to the... Uh, you know, wretched fortunes of, I don't know, a company like EMI when it was public, or indeed the difficulties that ITV have had over the l long period of time in, you know, in seeking a sort of, sort of long-term sort of stable path, also it would seem. And, uh, and so it feels like that the, these guys are on the winning, the, the, these guys are on the winning side. And I think where does that mean, where do we go democratically and as a country? I think we go to a country where media power is concentrated potentially in, in, in smaller numbers of people and in private individuals. And we look more like, and in that respect, we look more like perhaps the French media model where you get a number of plutocrats, you know, your Dussos and your Martin Bouygues and these kind of guys, uh, Bernard Arnault uh, uh, and so forth have a sort of very powerful position in media and they all seem to get on very well with uh, Sarkozy. Uh, you know, maybe that's the kind of country, we want, maybe that's just the country we're going to get, but that's kind of what's happening, I think, in terms of the balance of power. And whilst the BBC will remain a powerful and major force, there's no doubt about that, you, you know, it is gradually sort of, the, the scales are tipping the other way, and I think that's the sort of trend for the next sort of, that's the, that's the trend that we're sort of, that's the decisions we're taking now will create that kind of trend over the next sort of five, eight, ten years, I think. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if a different dynamic replaces it. But for now, I think that is the prevailing dynamic of our time and has been for the last sort of few years. So that sort of leads me in a bit into kind of uh, 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 those thoughts of the balanced power. Maybe slightly into kind of life after pessimism, um, which sort of touches on some of the things I've been saying about ITV, which I don't feel as acutely as I did, which is why you know, maybe like all good trends that I've outlined, they're actually a load of nonsense, and actually you can argue the reverse. Uh, 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 and the reason is, um, uh, and, and the reason is, we were all terribly, we went through a long period over the, again over the last five years, we've been very pessimistic about various forms of media, and they would all suffer from attrition and decline because there were new, new media were coming in, because free to air television dead, because the music business was dead, the film business would be hit by piracy, the newspaper business mine will be dead, you know, and so on and so on. And it just, you know, endlessly people would, would worry and fret and moan because they're. I don't know, five, eight percent drop in sales, and you know the bonuses weren't coming through to the degree they used to, and all this sort of thing. Um, and whilst to a degree some of this is true, uh, just letting you into an enormous secret, um, I've seen no newspapers closing, no television stations shutting down, very few, you, you, you know, no serious magazines in crisis, uh, you know, and indeed roughly the same number of music companies still going. Um, and actually, sort of, I feel like no shortage of half decent music in the charts to listen to. So I sort of, there's been this long narrative of business decline, and yet I don't see any concomitant decline in sort of creativity or, 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 or sort of cultural productivity. And so I sort of increasingly think, well, it's this sort of pessimism that was de rigueur of the sort of late part of the previous decade is not grossly overdone and rather tedious, actually. And we need to think about a world in which we're no longer sort of pessimistic about the future because I fear that network television or recorded music business or whatever it might be will be here with us for a frightfully long time yet. And dare I say it, even The Guardian, however bad our financial performance is at the moment, let me reassure you, it is bad. Um, uh, we will be here, I'm afraid, so we, we will be here uh, uh, for a long time, possibly indeed for, for, for sort of, you know, we may even be immortal, dare one say it, but we'll be here for a long time. So I think that has sort of coloured a lot of thinking, and I suppose if there's a way around, there's a way we may move beyond this sort of balance of power shift that I'm talking about, which I think you know, is is you know, is a remains a trend. Is that maybe people will get a bit more optimistic and the ability of 
of, of prevailing media brands to be more resilient. I, I think Trinity Mirror, I like this example, it currently trades on about two times earnings, which strikes me that if you're buying shares in Trinity Mirror, you do, you're, you're, you're so worried about it, you think the thing might go under in sort of two years. Which seems like a rational valuation if it's 1940 and the, and the Germans are sort of sitting on the other side of the English Channel and you own a newspaper because it is the quite real prospect that actually they'll turn up on our side of the channel and take over and there will be no newspaper left. But sort of at any other time, I'm not entirely sure it's a rational valuation. And yet that's what we think these, that's what the consensus view is, what these things are worth. Uh, and I think we've just got too pessimistic, you know, there, you know, in some places we're still too pessimistic and I, and I think we've got to overcome that. So that sort of takes me on to the thoughts about uh, on, on the kind of need for, on the vision thing. And I think, again, what we've seen over the last few months uh, at governmental level is we've seen a, uh, you know, a culture secretary, Jeremy Hunt, who has shown, who's been quite adroit uh, at, at doing deals. He's, he's been very good at avoiding the tedium of, long pro, of the long process beloved of some of his predecessors, principally Tessa Jowell, which sort of sapped all our flagging intellects. And he's sort of decided that I want to have a fairly dynamic media policy in which I will, I will negotiate and get things done. And he did a quick deal with the BBC over the licence fee. He's done a pretty quick deal. Uh, with Rupert Murdoch over the sky when he could have t tipped it over to the Competition Commission and exhausted us all with the regulatory inquiries. Now this is to be, well, this dynamism is emphatically to be welcomed uh, because, it, you know, we do, I think we need a culture of uh, politicians of decision making and then maybe they'd be held responsible for those decisions afterwards rather than just take forever. Uh, what, what worries me, though, is that negotiation is not a substitute for a strategy, and I think we need some broad. Uh, I think we need some broader thinking. And whilst I've just said to you uh, that uh, I think we are, we should be living in a sort of you know world, uh, you know, post-pessimistic world. I also firmly believe that we need a bit more. We need a bit more sort of. Uh, we need a bit more vision. We need a bit more sense, really, of uh, of supporting our creative industries. And and, and Britain uh, is increasingly rubbish at so many things. But luckily, we remain just about sort of you know powerful and successful in this area uh, in, in in all forms of creativity. Whether it's the you know whether it's the King's Speech, whether it's what our recorded music business can do, uh, whether it's what we can do in fashion and so on and so forth. And I think we have an incredibly inconsistent approach to how we support how we support and work with these areas we provide slightly baffling in my moment we provide some public money into uh, you know it, it, into film but almost no meaningful public support for music which we're better at in some ways than uh, than film uh, we provide we have a massive public intervention in tele television we you know we seem to have no constructive way to uh, you know, to work intelligently with sort of the you know press and publishing newspaper and magazines. Uh, uh, you know, we have sort of incredible pockets of, you know, we have some pockets of state support, some of not, uh, and we're not. I don't think we're ever really clear where we're going. And I think in any kind of sort of future where uh, Britain sort of continues to be a top country, as they might say, in 1066 and all that, um, uh, that that we need to have something depend on something other, something in addition to financial services. Uh, and 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 I think. You know, what the previous government tried to do but failed to in Digital Britain was try to articulate a broader strategy and narrative around how we would support our media industries. And we're not doing that at the moment, I think. And I, you know, and I think we need a sort of a broader, a broader set of ideas and people need to start thinking about it. And I think that sort of kind of broadly sums up my kind of thinking, which is that uh, uh, we see the balance of power, as I say, moving, I think, towards... Uh, from public to private, not, not, not decisively, but it's tipping that way. I think we've worried too much and for too long, and we need to be 
are more optimistic, uh, both uh, individually and collectively, and the best people in, in the media business are indefatigable optimists uh, and don't worry about what anyone else says in that respect. And I think we need to think a bit more deeply about you know, what it is we're trying to do because I think the relationship between public and private in terms of government and the industry needs to be got right. And I think at the moment we are sort of doing deals without a plan. Thank you. That wonderful old person, Anthony Sampson, who died in 2004 and had been producing versions of Anatomy of Britain for about 30 years then or more, uh, put the relativity of power in this country in the end papers in terms of the sizes of circles. So you would have the aristocracy, royalty, parliament, etc. in a number of circles. You just look how big they were. And in his final version, that came out in 2004, the year he died, the biggest circle in the end papers was simply the rich. Bears thinking on. Anyway, reasons to be cheerful, part five. Great. Now, John Whittingdale relates very closely to all this because he is, well, he's Tory MP for Malden. I'm not quite sure where Malden is. Essex, and why not? Well, Malden is in Essex. Um, well, I'll just move on from that. Uh, but the really important thing... This is salt. Yes. This, he's chair of the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, and so he brings, notionally, the great in media to account. They come and sort of Bob Diamond-like no, not Bob Darman like prostrate themselves <laughs> before his committee. And he's exactly. been doing that for some time, so he know quite a bit about it since 2005. He's an erstwhile city man, N.M. Rothschild, relationship banking, um, and conservative research department, and he was once PPS to William Hague, who appears to be having a turbulent time now. Challenging. It's a, it's a mystery. It's challenging. That's, that's, he is very uh, multiply challenged. William Hague, but there you are. Um, John. Thank you. Um, well, Dan's cheered you up, so now I'll depress you. Um, I, I, my thought for the day is not so much a thought as a, a nagging concern, um, which has come back, just reflecting on what I've been doing in the last few weeks. Um, two and a half weeks ago, I was in the Ukraine, in Kiev, where I went with the Westminster Foundation to talk to them about how to help an emerging democracy um, embed democratic values and all the facets of a free society that we are familiar with. And one of the principal um, components of a free society is a open, transparent and free media. And they've got some way to go. They have uh, media which is owned by oligarchs who largely dictate the content. Um, being a journalist in Ukraine is a challenging, sometimes rather dangerous profession to be in. There is regular intimidation, suppression of stories. And the main um, television channel is run by somebody who has a second job, which is head of the, head of the secret police, which is an interesting job combination. Um, I went from Ukraine to Georgia. And in Georgia, having an interest in media, I specifically asked to go and talk to working journalists. The situation is better in Georgia. They actually do have quite a, a diverse and vibrant media, but nevertheless, they were concerned too. They were concerned that the ownership of Saab there 
papers was still swathed in mystery and it was very difficult to identify and there was um, nevertheless some direction from uh, these mysterious figures as to what should and should not be printed. And then day before yesterday I had a meeting with the Minister for Communications from Hungary who is responsible for introducing the new Hungarian media law. Um, I don't know whether any of you have seen the controversy around the Hungarian media law, but uh, it is considerable. It is to establish a body, a media regulator that is government appointed, which has sweeping powers. Um, if it objects to the content in certain newspapers, it can impose enormous fines. Uh, and it has already been told by the European Commission that this is potentially in breach of European law. So having sort of told most of Eastern Europe in a rather superior way about how to bring about a free media, I then came back and started reflecting about what we have here. I uh, helped establish as the principal opposition spokesman at the time, uh, Ofcom. Ofcom is the British media regulator. Um, it has considerable powers. Um, it is government appointed. The first chairman was a uh, Labour peer and the first chief executive moved over to take the job from Downing Street. And it can impose fines on uh, broadcast television and radio stations if it objects to the content uh, of those stations. Um, tomorrow, I shall be grilling uh, the new chairman of the BBC Trust, Lord Patton. Uh, Lord Patton is a former Tory cabinet minister. This is the first time that the chairman of the BBC is going to be not just somebody with political affiliations, but somebody who spent almost his entire career in party politics and is very closely identified with one political party. I have become increasingly worried about the growth of privacy law in this country, um, which is suppressing newspapers from printing stories. Uh, it appeared mainly about almost every single member of the English football team originally, but now it is extending and we have uh, several bankers uh, who are now taking advantage of privacy law, which has been introduced into this country without Parliament ever legislating for it. Indeed, Parliament actually saying that it did not want a privacy law, but nevertheless, we now have one. We have journalists coming and saying to us that they are seriously being prevented from pursuing stories in the public interest because of the threat of libel actions in this country. Um, libel is now having a chilling effect. It is something the government is going to try and address, but there is no doubt that libel is now um, impeding both uh, journalists, uh, scientific research, um, NGOs looking into the abuse by third world despots, um, all of them have been threatened with libel actions in the British courts and it's not that they fear losing them, it is simply that they can't even afford to begin to defend them. And that is something which is worse in this country than almost anywhere else in the world. We have this phenomenon that has come about called libel tourism whereby people who have no connection with this country uh, choose to sue other people, often, often of whom have no connection with this country either, in British courts. And they do so in British courts because they believe that they stand the best chance of winning here and that they will be able to essentially close them down. The most famous case being that of the American author, Rachel Ehrenfeld, who was sued by a Saudi billionaire for writing a book suggesting that he was financing al-Qaeda. Um, and 
that case was upheld, a fine was imposed, which led to the American uh, administration, first in New York, passing what was called the Libel Terrorism Act, uh, which specifically allowed American courts to overturn British court judgments on the basis that the British courts were no longer abiding by the principles of freedom of speech. US publications are now choosing not to publish in Britain because of the fear that uh, something contained within them might generate a libel action. Uh, and Britain has been condemned by the UN Human Rights Commission uh, for its libel laws. Uh, we then have the phenomenon which I spent some time looking at of phone hacking by uh, the News of the World. Um, Parliament has reacted strongly against that principally because a number of politicians appear to have been victims of it. Um, and there is a general view that self-regulation of the press has failed. I've always been a strong supporter of self-regulation of the press, but I have to say it has not covered itself in glory during this particular episode. But there are growing cries that the PCC is not up to the job and that we need some kind of statutory intervention uh, and regulation. We have directives arriving from Europe, the latest being the Audiovisual Media Services Directive, which begins to extend the regulation of broadcast television into the internet. Uh, first, what they call near video on demand, but that has provisions for balance, for rights of reply, uh, and the various other provisions which we see already in existence for the regulation of television here. And then the latest uh, is that the government appears to be flirting with the idea of placing responsibility for content on internet service providers. We already have a situation where internet service providers voluntarily um, agree to take down any site or block access to any site distributing child pornography. But the talks now are going much further. They are talking about any content which might be harmful to children. Now that uh, extends to a lot of adult content, which is perfectly legal for adults to see in this country. But the government appears to be beginning to suggest that ISPs should uh, put in place controls over your access to that in case there is a danger that children might be watching. So all of the things that I talk to politicians in the Ukraine about, in Georgia about, and in Hungary about, are actually happening here too. We have a system whereby we have politicians being appointed to run major TV channels. We have a regulator which is politically staffed with sweeping powers that can close down papers, uh, that close down television stations and impose massive fines. We have a growing body of law that is being used to suppress investigative journalism and we are beginning to try to regulate uh, the net. Um, now, should we be seriously worried about this? Actually, in large part, no, because despite the fact that those powers are put in place, I still have a degree of confidence that although Ofcom has those powers, they will not be used for political purposes. Although Chris Patton is a party politician, I think he will actually uh, be, he will go out of his way in order to demonstrate that he is not um, a conservative appointee who has been put in place to uh, direct the BBC. And we are attempting to address some of the problems, particularly in the area of libel. But it does occur to me that that is only because we have at the moment an administration that if it tried to interfere with the media, I think would immediately encounter a storm of protest. But it does make it difficult to then go and lecture Eastern European countries for doing essentially the same thing, but on the basis that whilst we trust our politicians not to abuse those powers, we don't trust theirs 
And that essentially is the difference. Thank you. Well, it's a reminder what a lovely soft time media people who work here, about here, on nice, fluffy aspects of coverage, what a nice time they have. And they're not regularly shot on their doorsteps, which is why it's worth belonging to Penn and um, helping people who are in danger of being shot on their doorsteps for doing rather important things. You could say this thing about libel tourism you could say that was very entrepreneurial. You don't want to close down an obvious London growth business. It's Not a Carter Ruck take that view, yes, certainly. I mean, it's, you know, they've done their 10,000 hours. Now, it's your turn. Um, you can gibber on, but not for very long, with a swift observation. If it's an unswift observation, I'll cut you off. Um, or better still, a question to our glorious thinkers. Julia has a question. First of all, on the ageing thing, I would just say that about a year ago, my daughter, who was nine at the time, looked up and said, Mum, in your day, were there cars or just horses? <laughs> but my point is a question about privacy and journalism more widely, which is, over the last wee while, we've seen journalism almost the subject of problems with privacy more than any problems they meet out to people they're reporting on. So you have the news of the world being eaten up by its own scandal over phone bugging. You've got the Telegraph instigating a Kroll investigation into its own journalists to find out who leaked the bit they didn't want to run to the BBC. You have the Guardian in open warfare with Julian Assange, who it used to be loved up with and, you know, stories being leaked and so on. And it makes me wonder whether in this age in which the microphone is always on, there is basically zero privacy. Are we actually going to see major shifts in journalism? Are we going to see the end of total privacy? Are we going to see the end of sources anonymity? I mean, it seems to me that journalism is slightly sleepwalking into a new age where they have no privacy. What do you think? John. Any practicing politician has to assume that you don't have privacy. That's a safe option. But actually, I mean, obviously technology is, is, is making um, privacy harder to defend. And as you were saying earlier, people are foolish in the way in which they actually make available information about their lives in a way which removes all privacy, particularly through social networking and people posting photographs and private messages on Facebook and then being surprised when the world picks them up and publishes them. But if you have sufficient money, we do have at the moment a greater body of privacy law than we've ever had. And you know, if the, the rich and powerful are capable of using law to suppress stories and are doing so on a daily basis. And there are certain uh, solicitors' practices who are making a very good living, as Peter was suggesting, um, out of uh, privacy cases. and. That can, I think, raise serious questions about freedom of expression. I'm not, I'm, I don't give carte blanche to the news of the world to go and pr uh, print every detail of every person's sex life, but I think the, that the fact that privacy law is coming in, particularly without um, having been properly considered by Parliament, is quite a dangerous phenomenon. It's a big problem with the sort of public interest defence in this country in that it tends to be seen as what interests the public more than anything else. And there is 
uh, there is definitely an apartheid between people who can afford to uh, shut down any investigation into themselves and any proper investigation and people who are absolutely traduced by the media. You know, I have a lot of sympathy and it scares me as a journalist when I see the distortions in stories that I know well and I see people who cannot afford to defend themselves. Um, and quite often it's not a question of invasion of privacy, it's a question of, of things about people that are literally made up. So that's, that's really quite a, a, a separate issue. It was nice listening to a politician who understands the workings of journalism and is not innately hostile to journalism because one of the other problems very much in the States but also here is this incredible hostility between the uh, journalistic classes and the political classes which I think uh, is, is a barrier to getting um, both uh, you know, a, a sense of what we should be doing and how we should be regulating and uh, makes you know, in many ways the, the issue of self-regulation even more difficult. Um, I, I, I would also like to say I was quite surprised by your optimistic view and sorry to, to, to sound a note of pessimism, but the um, point about not seeing sort of magazines of repute going down, etc. I assume you were looking in this country and not in the States where um, it's, you know, I'm watching what happens with Newsweek with great interest, but also we've seen a lot of newspapers there uh, biting the dust, you know, things that are either have gone purely web-based or have actually disappeared altogether or are in Chapter 11. Dan? Uh, well, uh, maybe we'll get onto that separately. I'm rather enervated by pessimism myself, but uh, I, I think, you, Julie, you touch on the fine mess that we've got ourselves into, I think, uh, on this subject, and it sort of pulls in all sorts of directions. I don't quite know where we go. I mean, on the one hand, I think Catherine's point about the political, the suspicion between the political classes and the media classes is somewhat exacerbated by the fact that if you've had your phone, if you think your phone's been tapped into, or you've been a subject of some kind of prudent investigation, as an awful lot of people in the political class have been at various points and you know I've had debates with several politicians who sort of believe that various newspapers sort of ruin their marriages and it's sort of I can understand why there's a little bit of suspicion and resentment there so the way we, we pursue stories in Britain hasn't doesn't do our industry some do do ourselves some favors and we need to be it's hard to say that we need to be mindful of it because when you're out to get a story you're out to get a story but these are the consequences of what happens and I think uh, uh, what both previous speakers have touched on is this sort of growing duality which is that there are a certain group of people who are able to the, the sort of typically the rich in a certain set a certain stratum of the powerful already outside the political classes who are able to protect themselves through the growing rise of super injunctions for example uh, uh, you know and, and, and so on and so forth and, and for example in the media business the wonderful code of omerta that makes it extremely which the guardian doesn't respect at all um, but it makes it extremely difficult to write about in which you don't write about the proprietors of other newspapers and sort of serious media owners and having been sued by the Barclay brothers in France so never mind that libel tourism for a moment in France I sort of know what that's like firsthand and yet you also touch on the other side of the equation which is the tendency to there's this incredible tendency to openness and you've talked about I mean we at the Guardian who love nothing more than talking about ourselves will quite cheerfully tell you what happened in our relationship with Julian Assange there's nothing that we, that we hide there and I think the ability of you know, what people want to know or, or demand to know is how it works or how you've got to that conclusion across all forms of media whether you want to know about how the director shot that film or in newspapers so 
there is a demand to know how people got that story, what's the story behind the story, how people got that story, and did they do so ethically or legitimately? And this is the problem that the news of the world sort of butts up against virtually every other week now, which is how did you get that story? Was there a fake shake involved? Was there phone hacking? Did you do it properly or not? And, and that kind of journalism, I think, is, is becoming so controversial that it's being, I think, thrown into question as to how long it can carry on operating for. And you, know, you need a tough-minded owner like Rupert Murdoch to carry on. But you know, that said, there's a deep and rich and wonderful culture of tabloid journalism in this country, and I don't really want to see... You know, I'm not a sort of high-minded person who believes that, that just because people buy those newspapers, they're somehow wrong. So I think we're in a rather complicated situation. We've got a demand for great openness and less privacy on one hand, but the ability to enforce it uh, uh, amongst sort of certain classes of the rich and powerful, uh, which has never been stronger. And I don't quite know who wins, actually, but that's the game. The game's changed. More, please. Jodie Ginsburg, I'm the London Bureau Chief for Reuters. Um, I want to ask you a question about attention spans. Uh, in, a, in an age where you can watch the television and have your laptop open uh, on your, uh, w while you're sitting on the sofa with your uh, Blackberry or your iPhone next to you, uh, and be doing all of those things in an environment where you come to a breakfast and you're sort of almost positively encouraged to tweet while listening to the speakers. Um, how does that affect media? And in particular, obviously, how does that affect news? We've seen last year the launch of, of IVE, The Independent. Where, are, where does that take us in media? And what will be the impact specifically on, on news and journalism in that environment? I'll, I'll have a go. The temptation to say, what was the question, of course. <laughs> um, just on, atten on, on attention spans, ugh, again, there's a lot of pessimism in this area, and I think it's grossly overdone. Uh, you know, we love watching cinema admissions going up. You know, we can sit down and watch a film for, for two hours. People enjoy that more and more. We don't seem to have a great problem doing that. Uh, we don't seem to have a great problem consuming, I don't know, a drama like Mad Men, which, in which sort of nothing much happens for series after series, and yet it's strangely riveting. Uh, uh, <laughs> So we can, do those th we can do those things and we still do those things. On the other hand, uh, uh, I think you know, during the week when you're in the office, I think you're constantly bombarded with sort of sensory data. You feel like you're in some sort of battlefield situation flying a cockpit. And uh, it's rather thoroughly enjoyable by and large because you don't get shot. But also what happens is the ability to kind of consume is reduced to sort of bite-sized portions. So we find online, or when I was at the Times, for example, the data is roughly similar for the Guardian, but I remember the figures of the Times, you know, someone might read a newspaper for sort of, read a newspaper for 20 for 40 minutes, and dare I say it, they might read more than three articles. Whereas online, the average reader will consume between two and five articles in a visit. Um, and that's not a lot. And that's not a lot of new, on the face of it, it's not a lot of news information they're consuming. I would, though, make a second point, though, which is we've produced, we produce more news than we've ever done. And I think the number of news stories that are really interesting has not necessarily gone up. So on a day where there's a civil war in Libya, I'm pretty interested in that story. I'm probably not interested in public policy developments and health and education unless that's my thing. So I, I, I'm slightly less troubled. We do see this much more focused consumption of news, but maybe that's where news always was but I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with the click-through culture. I think that sort of, that, that's, that's something that brings, that, that adds dimensions to stories as well as taking away from them. Obviously, one of the problems with having your pieces online is that at once a month we get this lovely report where they tell us exactly what point the reader lost interest in our story and went <laughs> to another one. And it's like, it's the most ego-damaging thing because and one of the very sad things was if you ever wrote about Gordon Brown, they'd hit the word Gordon Brown and go to the next story. Um, 
And, um, you know, so you, you sort of, you, you begin to, to learn tricks. It does change what you do because you, if you're writing, I write very differently for online than for the magazine, although my magazine stories go online. You might not see it, but it I write them completely differently. I, I, I have a different approach. I'm also blogging and I blog differently to the straight online reports. But you learn certain tricks about burying certain kinds of words that are SEO friendly, you know, further down your story. And you start, you really do do things differently. Um, is that, is that bad? I don't think so. I just think it means that you have a different range of options, a wider range of options for how you write about things. I've, I've got two teenage children and a lot of what I do is determined by sitting and watching them because they behave in a way which is completely different to anything I've experienced. And this is an example of that. Um, they sit and watch television whilst playing a game on the laptop and at the same time being on the Blackberry talking to their friends, etc. And I can't do that. And I find it very difficult to understand quite how they can. My, my slight concern is twofold. Um, drawing on what Dan and Catherine have said, I, I think the, the sort of grazing of news, um, reading the first few paragraphs and then moving on, worries me slightly that it, it will lead to a, a a lack of depth of knowledge um, and you know, actually some of the most interesting things are contained deep in the body of an article and most of the time most people aren't reaching those for the reasons Catherine has, has given. I'm also not sure that we will get the same degree of sort of browsing of things just to see whether they're interesting. I mean the more focused approach uh, actually again leads to a lack of uh, breadth of knowledge, which worries me. I mean, these, this may be a sort of old-fashioned view, and I may be proved wrong, but th those, those would be my concerns. There is a danger that you lose nuance. I mean, that's something, however, in broadcast journalism that's the case anyway, where you're supposed to deliver things in sound bites. And as you may have noticed, I'm not very good at sound bites. Um, it, it's a frustration. But I think the browsing point is, is almost the opposite, that people find things that they would never set out to look for. You know, it is true that if you want to find Libya, you can, you can search for certain keywords. But it's also true that with links embedded in stories and with the way you get offered things online, you start finding subject areas you didn't know about. So I suspect, as like all these things, when you devalue when you, you as a consumer devalue a certain kind of media commodity and start clicking through it, you wallow in something else. So there's, you know, they're going to be long indulgent. Amazingly enough, uh, people are watching actually in this country as much or more telly as they were in the alleged golden age. Lady at the front here. Hi, Brigitte Trafford. My question's going back actually to the news of the world and phone hacking and I'd be interested in knowing whether the panel think that this really was just limited to the news of the world or whether there's a danger that it was more widespread across the media. And if it is discovered to be the latter, what the long-term consequences might be for the media. Who, uh, well, who knows? Well, I, I spent a long six months <laughs> uh, grilling various employees of the news world about this. Um, I mean, the original contention, which was that it was one 
rogue journalist who was acting without any authority or knowledge of any other person on the newspaper is clearly nonsense. We know that's nonsense, and we concluded at the time that it was nonsense. It was it must have been widely known in the news world, and I actually don't believe that uh, the news world was uniquely bad in Fleet Street. Um, it, they employed a private investigator who was regularly hacking into phones. There are other private investigators who I suspect were working for other newspapers and who were frequently adopting similar tactics, and I suspect editors just didn't like to know. It was inconvenient for them to know. Um, the concern really is whether or not it's still going on, and I'm, I'm, I haven't seen any evidence that it is, or at least no um, serious evidence. Um, and why I hope that things have changed, but that's something which Dan is perhaps in a better position to say whether or not that's the case. And one little uh, question that, that, that your question raised in my mind is that from time to time, and I'd love to know um, what you all think, from time to time, over the last 20 years, people have suggested to me, people from within and without News International, that the agenda of the various dossier collections, whether through phone hacking or not, was not just to have lovely stories on below-stairs celebrities or royal people. It was to have big dossiers on everyone who mattered. And I wonder, is this a product of, para of, of universal paranoia? Brackets. And even if it is, it has certain impacts on the people who think that they are dossiered and therefore that they're speaking out against News International's initiatives and lovely plans might be a problem. Or was it, at, you know, was there some basis in reality in that thought? Because I'm sure all of you will have heard from time to time that that was what it was about. What an interesting suggestion. Um, my newspaper's got a serious interest in phone hacking, of course, um, and other things. Did it go on elsewhere? Yes, it did. Uh, did other techniques go on elsewhere? Pulling of health records, uh, pulling of phone data, uh, uh, call records. Yes, they, yes, they did. Are we aware of some examples at The Guardian? In broad terms, yes. Have we got anything we can prove in print? You'd have read it by now if we did. Um, we're working on it. Uh, was News International and the News That World doing it more better than anyone else? I think they were. I think, as is often the case with Murdoch and Papers, they're very good at what they do within the parameters that are set. I think this sort of this sort of culture and practice was a broad practice across the tabloid half of Fleet Street, use of private investigators in particular. I mean, and um, uh, and I think the News of the World did it very sort of in a very broad in a very broad way. And I think this is what happens when you know when media feel it's too powerful, so powerful it's untouchable. Arguably, when it's weakly regulated, there was a point about the PCC earlier. I symp we sympathise with the Guardian. I sympathise with it personally, but it's our newspaper's view. Um, and I think it's what happens when media organisations think they're just too big and powerful to be stopped. Um, we had a problem that was out of control. I don't know, is that gone away completely? I think it's attenuated. I don't know if it's gone. I think John's committee should 
be prepared to ask people back from News International and possibly from elsewhere sometime in the coming weeks. And maybe you could try your luck and get one or two private investigators in. That would be fun, but I think you'll be... If you can get Glenn Mulcair to come in and visit, you'll be selling tickets. Uh, I think, I think it, that culture is deeply entrenched, so whether it's going on now is a moot point. It's whether it would start again in the, in the future. I also think, although it was largely focus, it's largely a tabloid construct, it had spread to um, various of the broadsheets as well. The thing to me that um, I still find more shocking in some ways about the story, and I was never at all shocked by any of the revelations because I did know it was going on and because I do know of examples, which again, I can't print, but I absolutely know of but it's the police role in it. Um, just to give you an example, um, there was a BT engineer who was caught putting um, a phone tap in a junction box, who was caught, who was prosecuted for it, but the police investigation never looked at who had sent him to tap that phone. Um, there was really no police investigation into that. You know, um, as if some BT engineer off his own bat would go and um, it happened to be my brother-in-law whose phone he tapped. So, um, <laughs> um, there, there are there are all sorts of of things that were considered so routine that that almost people didn't turn a hair at them. So, as I say, I don't know whether it's still going on now, but I would be quite surprised if there isn't a return to those techniques unless something is done about it unless there's some confidence that there would be a proper investigation into it, that there are real penalties for it, as opposed to the scapegoating of the few. Because one of the things that creates the climate in which that happens is intense competition between media outlets, and you're certainly in a competitive age now. Lady at the back there. Susie Dean, I'm a journalist. Um, I think that the news of the world issue really brought to the fore the confusion there is now between the public and the private. Because the reality is I want journalists to be able to snoop when it's in the public interest to do so. What politicians or footballers are doing in the bedroom shouldn't be the, the business of the public. And I think that's the debate we really need to be having now, um, rather than one where it's about should journalists be able to phone hack or not. I think it does depend on the circumstances. Claire Ward. Um, I can say from personal experience, as uh, uh, John and I will have discussed in the past, I think that there's no doubt that uh, the phone hacking was taking place, not just um, with the news of the world, but right across the media industry. And I think that um, what it may well have also done is, is gone back to the point that you raised earlier in terms of celebrity and raising the profile of celebrities um, to the detriment, not just of the privacy issues and people's rights, but also in raising celebrities to the point of being godlike amongst um, a new generation. Now, you know, my, my four-year-old tells me the other day that she wants to be a pop star and an MP, and I'm not sure that's the peculiarity of, of our, li of our <laughs> former lifestyle, but, <laughs> but yes. But, but what worries me is the idea that that new generation will come up thinking that um, the words of Katie Price is as valid and as important as perhaps what might be being said by any member of the government um, or the shadow of uh, uh, the opposition in terms of the big issues that will make a real difference upon their lives, how they operate, how they live, how they work, um, uh, and the world in general. And that, to me, is one of the biggest changes 
that media have had in the way that they have driven that celebrity culture? And do you think there's any way to close that stable door? What should be done? I, I think um, the, idea of, the idea of closing down the, the, that uh, closing the, the media circus is, is uh, the, sorry, the media circus, the celebrity circus, it's unthinkable. I mean, that is the currency of our modern age. Celebrity, celebrity is more disposable than ever. One of the things about the digital world is that it's speeded up the process. Um, one of the things about the failing economic models, again, I'm a lot more pessimistic about the music industry than Dan is, uh, of the music industry, is that it mean, it's led to this kind of rapid cycling where people don't invest in creating celebrities. They have much quicker ways to do so, but so you have this, this incredibly fast turnover. But celebrities are kind of filling a, a vacuum that was created by the erosion of... of um, trust in, in other areas of public life. And it is very hard to see, and they have become a currency and they have become the greatest sales force of the age. So it's very hard to see really how you, how you row back from that. Pick up on what Susie Dean said, which is we want journalists to expose wrongdoing in the public interest. On the other hand, we don't want intrusion into people's private lives and gratuitous sort of spreads about what people enjoy in the bedroom. And it's very hard to allow one and not the other. And drawing the dividing line is almost impossible. And that was best exemplified by, I think, Max Mosley, um, where Paul Dacre appeared before our committee. And it wasn't actually, a day, it wasn't his publication, but I mean, he argued very strongly um, that there was a huge public interest in the fact that uh, Max Mosley um, paid for sadomasochistic sessions and that it was an outrage that the courts had decided that this was an invasion of privacy. And I think it is, I, I think there is a, a, a contradiction in some ways in that we seem to be arguing for freedom of expression in some cases but not in others and it's, that's a very difficult line to draw. Exactly that kind of public interest, whatever interests the public uh, paradigm that I was talking about. Yeah, I, think, I think John's right. I think you can't draw the divide very, very, very clearly or easily. I, I don't want to live in a world where Celebrity. It's bad enough as it is. I, don't, I quite like stories that upset celebrities, and I don't mind if they're sort of obtained with some difficult, you know, with some difficulty and some a modest, a certain amount of justifiable subterfuge. Because, you know, I, I want to see these people upended. Actually, I mean, it not just doesn't just sell papers. I care about. It. I, I don't want to live in a world where we think so, celebrities are sort of reverential. You know, we, we, we sort of revere them, and any sort of any sort of um, commentary that's negative about them is somehow bad. Similarly, having spent you know a lot of time in various you, you know sort of being involved in various bits, the political classes. There's nothing that animates politicians any you know more than a sex scandal. I mean, Mark Oton and the Golden Chairs. I mean, was adored by people uh, uh, in, in, a, in a number of political parties. And and it doesn't matter how much you feel it's wrong. People love it. People understand it. People love the fall of someone else from grace because life is kind of about are you going up and is the other guy, is the other woman coming down. And, and that's part of the world, um, that is part of the world in which we live. So I'm, I'm, I sort of feel these are kind of sort of inherent human dynamics and I'm not so troubled about the sort of the desire that you say, you know, your daughter ought to be a, a pop star and an MP. Uh, 
I mean, when I was a kid, I aspired to be, I don't know, I aspired to be a test cricketer. I'm terrible at cricket. Uh, you know, you know, uh, you know and, and any number of things. I wanted to be famous in some way, I thought. But I think this is a natural childhood design. I think we, our anxiety about, what was really revealed is our sort of our anxiety about the changing world and our anxiety about our children growing up. And I think it's less, it's less significant than we think. Uh, and a last thought, I think the difference between politics and celebrity, if I'm, I don't know, if, if my decision in life is about what aftershave to buy or even some thoughts on how I might raise, raise my children better, I might, I mean, why not listen to what, I don't know, why not take a view on what Jordan does, frankly, because that might help me. I mean, if a politician or somebody else tells me how to raise my family, I, I don't see that as massively relevant advice. I think Jordan's view is as relevant, if I'm being honest with you. On the other hand, if I'm getting into a substantive debate about health policy, uh, or that's what interests me, I don't really think Katie Price's view is very relevant there. So I think, we, I think we've got to understand what the salience of politics is and where pol what politics is about and what the rest of our daily lives is about. And I think these are about different things. Carry much more weight on on health issues in the states. I mean, what Oprah Winfrey says on her show about, for example, hormone replacement, bioidentical hormone replacement. A million women go out and start themselves on bioidenticals. Uh, I can't think of a, a politician in America who would be able to debate healthcare policy with the same force. So that that is. Where, where, where you have to worry about the balance is, is about what the reliability of your sources are when you're, when you're gaining information. And so I think there are really genuinely legitimate concerns about celebrity culture. Um, I don't know how to address them. That's why, that's why you need competition and choice in media. Yes, you, you, need different you need different voices of power in the debate. I think everybody in this room will have read The Guardian to double-page spread on Julian Assange's Swedish sex life. Am I right? Yes, of course you did. And that was an achievement in itself because it really sapped the will to make any kind of decision about anything. And you know, I had to sit in a darkened room <laughs> and, and just weep for an hour until, you know, it was most extraordinary account. Well, it's the opposite of everything we've described, anyway. Sophie. It, cha it changed how everyone thought about the man. Yes. I'd like to ask the panel um, just to touch upon the Middle East from their particular point of view. So, um, at the moment, uh, John, Egypt is close to a written constitution, two months to government and two months after that to president. We all know what's going on, well, we don't, in Libya. I'd like to ask Dan, are we trying to hack into Gaddafi's phone? Because that would be interesting. I'd like to ask um, uh, Sarah, Catherine, sorry, um, the youthful populations of the Middle East, um, Saudi royals being much older than the people on the street. Egypt, I believe it's something like 40% is under the age of 30. A point about that and, and what's going on in those countries. On, uh, on the Arab Spring, I mean, it, people have worried a bit about serious journalism. We shouldn't worry, I think. Um, we've, been, we've had actually a very good run at The Guardian. Uh, we've been running sort of live blogs. We've doing some journalism in Arabic, not enough, but some, because actually we've found we've picked up quite a lot of salience in the Arab world who are people who are reading The Guardian online who wouldn't have had access to it as a source of information. So at one point, on one of the important Fridays in Egypt, our live Egypt blog was read by 200,000 different people. Uh, during the day, and we think that's a pretty, which is the number of people that, a bit more than that, buy the newspaper in, in, in Britain. But we think that was a pretty good number. I think that when we had sort of 500,000 page views, so people are looking at it too in a bit of time. So 
we think that's very, that's very positive and encouraging for our reach of our journalism. Are we hacking Gaddafi's phone? I think that's a seductive and intriguing idea. Uh, the answer's no, uh, but having seen what happened with sort of the Snuxnet computer virus, I fear that other agencies are. Uh, in, in terms of the youth quake, um, yes, clearly a lot of what's, what you're seeing on the street in, in, the, um, in these different countries are youth coming out. Um, as everyone's talked about the use of social networking in um, the dissemination of information and, and in the um, response um, and in coordinating the response. But um, that does not mean that my point earlier about um, it being good to um, continue to not, not to um, shuffle off your older population is in any way rendered redundant by the site of the youth quake in the Arab uprisings because gerontocracies are very bad things. You only need to look at Italy to understand that it doesn't just have to be a dictatorship, although some people might say there's something approaching that, that in order to um, be bad, if to have old people in power who refuse to cede and make way for other people. Um, what you're seeing is um, entrenched power being confronted by people who have been denied access to power, access to um, development. And it happens that in those countries there is a, an age dynamic to that. But it, it really doesn't hold true if you look at most countries because most countries are aging. So, um, you know, you, would, you might be seeing 40-year-olds coming out against 60-year-olds if you, if you followed that through. Um, so I don't, I don't think it is a youth, it happens to be a youth quake, but that's to do with a very specific um, demographic in those countries. This is not intended to be a criticism of the government, which I, of course, support. Um, but I do think that our government and indeed most Western governments have been left completely bewildered. Um, traditionally, the American view, certainly under George Bush, and some extent continuing, is the neocon. We have a mission to spread our version of best practice in government across the world, which means functioning democracy. But on the other hand, these people generally, with the exception of Gaddafi, but certainly Egypt and most of the Gulf states have been pretty pro-West. Um, and there is a huge fear, I think, now as to what will replace them. We like the idea that people want to have a more democratic system, but on the other hand, we're worried that actually something might come along which would be even more um, adverse to us than, than uh, what is there at present, and then of course there's the concern over oil prices as well. So I mean, I think I think we are giving the impression of being somewhat sort of bewildered and unsure what to do. And I think the reason we are giving that impression is because actually it's pretty accurate. Lady at the front here. Hello, Sarah Motlock. I'm a journalist. I wanted to pick up on the immortality um, question that Catherine raised um, raised earlier, and um, we. Really, my thoughts were going along the lines of our culture being imbued at the moment with um, aspiration and ambition, and there's nothing wrong with those, but they seem to be getting filtered through acquisition for so many people. And I keep reading that we're supposed to be making the lives of our children twice as good as our lives, which begs the question, well, what's so bad about our lives? Um, I, if I went under a bus in the Strand this morning, um, I would die happy. Um, okay, I didn't get to Angkor Wat, and I didn't swim with whale sharks or whatever, didn't meet Simon Le Bon, as your celebrity bit, <laughs> but um, I would have no regrets. 
And I wondered um, what you thought of the idea of counting our blessings. Do, are we just, have we forgotten how to count our blessings, to live in the here and now, to value the lives we do have, instead of constantly feeling the pressure or imposing the pressure on ourselves to acquire more and to be more, um, whether it makes us happy or not? But immortality is not, is not something that runs counter to that. We, it, it is a product of, of cultures that have enshrined the idea, are enthralled to the idea of growth. I mean, we, we believe in, in constant expansion. Um, and, and therefore, you know, the, the idea that, that you have to keep buying, that you have to keep generating economic activity, that you have to, you know, there are lots and lots of reasons why we might question that, not least the environmental aspect of it. Um, it is also true that, that anybody who's happy um, that I've ever interviewed has some kind of ability to um, find a quiet space and, and, and to sit and reflect. And, you know, I think some of the earlier questions about attention span related to that as well are the, the fact that we sometimes are so eager to run towards the next experience or the next purchase that we don't sort of stop and take stock. Um, but uh, that is, that is uh, what my book is doing, is describing the world we live in and the forces that have created it. And staying active, immortals do tend to have a tendency to try and fill every single second. Um, this is something that we all do. There's a, there's a theory called terror management theory, which says that just about every human endeavor can be explained in terms of um, trying to ward off intimations of mortality. <clears throat> and I think, you know, there is, there is some truth in that theory. It's also, when you read some of its writings, quite funny, but... Um... Dave Raven, the sound guy. Um, <laughs> Catherine's point about amortality, I think, is so accurate. Um, I'm, I guess, the oldest in the room. We are all in this room immortal. I was immortal until three years ago. And then I have a stroke. And when you lose all the bits that you take for granted, the speech, mm -hmm. the writing, all those things, that's when all of a sudden immortality gets knocked on the head very sharply. Yes. And so I think that we are all enjoying our immortality, but it can be taken away from us so, so quickly. That's absolutely true. And one of the, my point about looking at ways, both on a policy level as well as on a personal level, to ensure that people have the best chance of aging healthily you know, where this is, a, this is a huge, huge issue for politics. I don't, I don't think politicians have, have really grasped, you know, people talk about the, the great tsunami and all of this, but they don't really, they wouldn't be enthralled, for example, to big food in the way that they are. They would not let the bad diets continue if they really looked at the implications of what that means. Now, some people will have strokes, some people will get cancer, some people have genetic reasons why they will not age healthily, but you can make a huge difference. This, this is one of these things where because it happened, and you can also live healthily after, you know, a lot of the centenarians, super centenarians who are people 110 plus, they have had a lot of these episodes in their lives, but they make a recovery afterwards. Um, but no, I mean, this is, this is the biggest issue for public health um, but it is, it is a big issue that, that goes across so many portfolios and it is being ignored. The director is telling me to wind up, so I'm going to do that. Thank you 
for being so wonderful and generally immortal. Thank you to our marvellous speakers, Catherine, Dan, and Michael. John, I'm sorry, how did we get there? Was it? Age, it's age. It's age. Um, one little thought about media. Since successive revelations have shown that all the governments of the Middle East are incontrovertibly horrible in every way, you know, in the business of the cutting off of hands and the suppression of women and, and the suppression of um, dissent in every way, why was it that all our media from top to bottom didn't tell us this on a regular basis, day and night? And I think we know the answers. They're a combination of real politique, thinking, oh dear, they are utter bastards, but they're our bastards. That's the political aging process. And then there's the thing, oh, we can sell them lovely things. If you're a Knightsbridge seller of lovely things, you can sell all the, the nasty rulers in the Middle East lovely things. And then it might be that you were George Galloway. <laughs> anyway, wonderful, our three wonderful speakers. The FT is our partner in EI Club this year. Isn't that a wonderful thought that anchors and yet gravitasizes everything we do? Thank you very much. I'm so sorry for that. No, it was a sign of impending something.